Welcome to the Theology Podcast, and we are back at Artisanal Burger Company in Manchester, Connecticut. We've got a full crew to to, uh, to keep us company here as uh, we do a show. And uh, I am C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor, and I am serving a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written stuff, but hey, this is not about me. This is about the subject of the day. But before we get to the subject of the day, why don't we have Tom? <laughs> Tell us about himself, Tom. Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Great. And Glenn, Glenn, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then get us into the subject of the day. Okay, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University. You'll be hearing a lot more about history as we go along. All right. And um, I run a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. Great stuff. So what are we talking about? Well, after Tom's last uh, session when he was leading, I thought it might be helpful to back up a little bit and talk about some of the stuff that was going on in the 17th century, which is the period Tom was talking about, because it turns out there are a number of, of um, important things that really the 17th century is a transition point. A number right. of important things are going on. So I thought I'd, I'd uh, kind of enumerate some of those and see where things head. Uh, you guys usually are not at a loss to keep things going, so we'll see where this goes. Sure. Did, did, you see, did you see what the Grumblers posted about our, our show on uh, guilds? No, I didn't see that oh, one. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's great. It, it's, uh, it, it, it uh, portrays me as Pippin, <laughs> you know, with a, with a, with a pot of ale upon my head dancing around, ah. and then your Frodo looking at me exasperated. <laughs> Which actually yep. was kind of the way the show went. Actually, pretty, 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 pretty close. Well, I'll have to get over there. They must not have tagged me, or I must have missed it. But anyway. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, the Reformation occurs in the 16th century, and during the Reformation, one of the things that's going to happen is your, your is Chris is going to put a beer on his head and start dancing on the table. Uh, but he didn't do that in the 16th century. Um, so in the 16th century, one of the things that's going to happen is, for a bunch of reasons, some of them connected to the Reformation, some not, there's going to be a rise in uh, rationalism. And I'm using rationalism in kind of a broad sense. There's rationalism in sort of the, the uh, formal sense that, you know, rational thought is what is really emphasized. You're also seeing, though, a rise in empiricism, too, with, with uh, uh, Bacon and some others. But theologically, this is going to show up with people like Socinus and a number of others who were uh, what historian George Hunston Williams refers to, or maybe he's a theologian, he calls them uh, evangelical rationalists. Mm -hmm. yeah. The evangelical really needs to have a question mark after it. Mm -hmm. But they, they were people who were really concerned with trying to apply reason to theology. And the, their basic principle, now up to, uh, we've talked about this before, you know, you have reason and revelation as, as sort of both uh, sources of truth through the Middle Ages and in most of the Reformation, these guys are beginning to emphasize reason over revelation. Well, not over revelation. They're, they're going to argue that what they're doing is following what the Bible says, but if it doesn't make sense to their reason, the Bible can't really be saying it. Got yeah. it. And Got they, it. Yeah, and, they're, and they, they assume that their reason was some kind of universal transcendent reason, even though it's shaded with its time and place. But anyway, that's... Sure, yeah. So you, so you begin getting these guys who are busy applying reason to theology, and that's going to be one of the key things that's going to end up shaping a lot of what's going on in the 17th century with the rise of Protestant scholasticism um, and actually the roots of liberal theology as well. All of it's coming out of that, that growth in rationalism. Along with that, there are other things floating around, like a recovery of an ancient skeptical thinker by the name of Pyrrho. Yes, we've talked yeah. about him. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Pyrrho's thought ends up being really important. Ultimately, it's the thing that drives Descartes. Right. Um, Pyrrho, uh, one of my students dubbed Pyrrho the toddler from hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Pyrrho was a skeptic, a very thoroughgoing skeptic, whose 
methodology was essentially designed to destroy certainty. Mm-hmm. And at this point, certainty was considered necessary for something to qualify as knowledge. And we talked about before with Pascal and the barometer and things like that, how that ends up uh, breaking down. But those two things, that this rise in skepticism and the rise in rationalism at the same time, end up shaping a lot of what's going on in the 17th century. So, specifically, one thing I ha- don't think we talked about um, is you begin getting biblical criticism starting in this yeah, period. Right, mm-hmm. right. And interestingly enough, one of the earliest figures in this is going to be a Jewish guy by the name of Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza. Yeah, big, sure, Spinoza. Big, yeah. Yeah. And big. You know, Spinoza is important for a whole lot of different things. For my purposes right now, though, he's going to challenge the idea that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. As a good Jew, right? yeah. Now, yeah. the the interesting thing about this now, is wasn't that, he wasn't he uh, excommunicated? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah I think it was. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's kind of hard to use excommunicated yeah, for the Jewish community, but, but the equivalent, generic yeah. equivalent right, here. Right. But the 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 reason why Spinoza went after Mosaic authorship had nothing to do with Moses. Hmm. It had everything to do with Jesus, hmm. because Jesus attributed the Pentateuch to Moses. And if he could demonstrate that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, then what that meant was that Jesus either was ignorant of the author or lied about it. Hmm. And so this was a way intentionally of trying to undermine Christianity. So this is in the Netherlands, right? Yeah. Right. And with Spinoza, you also have a, a radical breakdown of transcendence because the spiritual and the natural are fused. Right. And so it, it really for him a, a, a thoroughgoing natural historical understanding on the natural level would have been just as spiritual because the, right. the natural and the spiritual were fused. Right. And so he, he had no problem with that one level of natural causality. Um, that that the regular field of history, as we tend to think of it as moderns, just no supernatural intervention. There's no transcendence, uh, uh, really above and beyond in any deep sense. But it's completely imminent within the historical and the natural. Well, I, I suppose the thing that's uh, intriguing to me about this occurring in the Netherlands is uh, the Netherlands uh, were a haven of religious toleration, right? Right. They're a place where Jews and uh, different groups... We have to be a little careful here. Yeah. They were a haven for religious toleration unless you claim to be Reformed and didn't line up with the way they thought you should. <laughs> that's right. So in that case, you're gone. You're right. just like, that's right, we might even kill you. But, but you can be a Jew. And, uh, but I guess the thing that's intriguing to me is that uh, here in this sort of bubble of toleration, Spinoza takes it upon himself to kind of put his finger in the eye of the authorities, the Christian authorities. Right. Well, one thing you have to remember about the Netherlands, it was very much a commercial society. Sure, sure. And commercial societies tend to be tolerant because it's good for business. That's right, right. So we have to keep that in mind here. That's right. Muslims have money. Yeah. We we want their money. (laughs) Yeah. So um, it it turns out, by the way, Spinoza has been described as a pantheist. Yeah. yeah, It's interesting that the word pantheism was invented in the 17th century by a guy named Tolland who wrote a book called Christianity Not Mysterious. Yeah, that's right. In which he coined the term pantheism to describe his vision of God. And it's essentially very similar to Spinoza's. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now, wasn't Spinoza the, the uh, lens grinder? Was, was he the lens grinder? Uh, I don't remember. But he, yeah, but... They, I, I that to, sounds right. Typical, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, I, is it uh, David Israel... Is he a, a historian? He wrote a huge book, basically arguing for Spinoza being the father, the real father of the Enlightenment, not not later Descartes and the rest. Yeah, but I, I, I do think he that. was. I did think he was involved with. It's like typical of people at that time. They tended to have expertise in a wide variety of areas. I think right. he was and yeah. and grinding lenses, optics, and things like that yeah. had long been associated with epistemology. Right. Hmm. Right. You know. So. So that wouldn't surprise me. That does sound right. Um, I'm a little rusty on my Spinoza, but that does sound like that's yeah. that, that's right. Um, we can verify that later. But um, so another thing that's going to occur during this period is really going to revolve once again around mosaic authorship. Uh, there's a 
guy by the name of Richard Simon, who's a French Catholic. Um, he was sort of a freelance writer. He occasionally wrote for Protestants. But um, he, he was, in fact, a <laughs> French that. Catholic who wrote a book to try to solve the problems raised by Mosaic authorship. Um, he wrote a book in which he argued that, well, you know, when you look, read the book of Romans, you've got this verse toward the end of it, I, Turtles, who wrote this letter, greet you. And so we know that Paul used a scribe. Right. So what Simon posited is that it's called the public scribes hypothesis, the idea that Moses used public scribes. These were guys who, whose job it was to just sort of uh, take dictation and clean it up and that kind of thing. And so Moses would tell, tell them things and then they would write it down. So it isn't exactly the words of Moses, right. but it's essentially the gist of what he said. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, this- and this was his method for trying to solve some of the problems raised by Mosaic authorship. Moses was the humblest man in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of things. Yeah, there's a... Uh, well, another term for a scribe is amanuensis, and uh, there's uh, some work that has been done on on Ephesians because there are people who, you know, because of, uh, you know, criticism, biblical criticism, have identified things that seem to be ways of expressing himself in, he, in Ephesians that don't seem to be in keeping with other you know, letters written by Paul. Yeah, stylistically, Ephesians is a little weird in Greek. Yeah, but the, uh, one, of the defen- one of the ways of defending it is just that same defense, that this is the work of an amanuensis who maybe took more liberty than you find with others. And, and I, I think it, it's worth reiterating kind of what radical change was brought about with Spinoza in terms of biblical uh, criticism and relation and, and the understanding of history with the scripture around that issue. Uh, Kenneth Schmitz, um, a philosopher, um, wrote an uh, excellent essay, something about the retrieval of first principles. And he said, really, one of the big changes that happens with Spinoza is this big difference between the classical Christian approach which was to understand the scripture, its history, and everything light in, in light of first principles. So in other words, scripture is not this self-contained um, uh, fact that sits on its own to which you can un- you kind of unpeel its, its history and everything else. It's part of a communicative economy. It starts with the word, and you, to understand its history and its meaning, you cannot sev- separate it from that that um, from its source, the, that the, its source and its purpose and its ends. Right. Here, we're dealing not with metaphysical first principles, but we're dealing with the quantitative, the measurable, the that, that which history can um, kind of point to on its own terms without having to go behind and look at, at deeper first principles. So it's really a change in what counts as what's most real. Is it? the metaphysical principles that give birth to nature, history, and everything else, or is it the, the historical artifact you have in right in front of you? If the historical artifact right in front of you is what's most real, then you have to understand all of the theological content in light of the historical rather than the historical in light of the, 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 the reality that, that, that is, is uh, Scripture's pointing to. So it's a reversal of the classic Christian vision. Yeah, so you're talking about historical meaning of the scriptures. Yes. Right. So scriptures are historical, and they are to be understood in light of history as, as we can understand it naturally, first and foremost. But those things aren't the ultimate reality that gives it its meaning and sense. Spinoza will keep it. That's the primary reality. Right. Or right. he introduces that anyway. He may not have held it, but he introduces that notion. So you're moving from the... the um, the metaphysical to the quantifiable. That's really the big shift, the empirically quantifiable. Um, and so I- empirical measures are the ultimate measure for the meaning of scripture and, and, and the historical. It's, maybe it's too abstract, but the best way for us to think of it is just when we want to understand a biblical passage, we almost think that the final meaning of that text is what we can reconstruct by reconstructing its natural history. 
that's what gets introduced with Spinoza. Right. But historically, the, the Christian understanding was that its source was in God. Its end was the first principle. Yeah, God. you can't understand the natural apart from the, the ultimate first principle. Right. The, the beginning, sustainer, and end. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, we, we've also got a couple of other quirks in there. The idea yeah. that, that uh, scripture must have one and only one meaning, meaning that, yeah. um, where it can't really be multivalent. And that's, right. that's just, that, that I think is an unwarranted assumption. And if, that, if you're operating in a realm of inspiration. And that one meaning is, is what level? That's the yeah. primarily the natural, right? Right. Yeah, yeah the, the historical. Yeah. Grammatical, yeah. Grammatical, yeah. yeah. So, well, <clears throat> back to Simon. Um, it turns out that uh, his proposal got a response from a Dutch remonstrant. <laughs> By the way, uh, this was published in the Netherlands in a journal by a French Huguenot refugee <laughs> called the, the News of the Republic of Letters. But uh, the response to Simon came from a, a remonstrant, Dutch-Arminian, by the name of Jean Leclerc. And Leclerc said that Simon's solution was no solution. It made the problem worse. Because what it said was... We really don't know who wrote scripture. We don't have a, na a single name attached to the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. um, because it, if it's not Moses' words, if it's these public scribes' words, then we don't know who they are. We don't, we don't know who wrote them. Therefore, we have to treat the Pentateuch as anonymous. And so we got to throw out Mosaic authorship altogether. And Simon was, uh, he, he, Leclerc just really attacked him pretty viciously. And Simon uh, was, really incensed by this um, he started stoking himself up on the only stimulant that was available at the time which was chocolate <laughs> and, and he, uh, he kept himself awake and wrote furiously a response to Leclerc um, by the way the, the, um, uh, the book that I read on this indicates in one of the footnotes that during this period Simone came down with a skin disease um, and so the doctor put him on a fish diet, which cleared it up. Um, so, but in any event, um, Simon wrote a response. Leclerc wrote a response. The two of them went back and forth. It's worth noting that Bale didn't want to post Leclerc's review of Simon, but but Leclerc more or less uh, browbeat him into doing it. But this debate between Simon and Leclerc, although almost completely unknown is going to be the thing that's going to really kick off a lot of movement toward uh, liberal Christianity and um, biblical criticism and things like that. So, for example, um, a guy by the name of John Locke, um, who I hope you're all familiar with. Yeah, I've heard um, of that guy. Locke started off as a standard Puritan. Yeah. He followed the Simone Leclerc debate, and that's the thing that got him to move away from conservative Christianity, got him to move away from Puritanism toward a, an essentially liberal approach to the faith. Well, this is fascinating because, uh, for at least this reason, it, we often think that there's some huge and sort of obvious cause for developments and trends that we look at and you know, can see how important and big they are, you know, down the road. This is, this particular debate you're describing is something I had not heard about. Yeah, and the only reason I know about it is uh, John Woodbridge, one of my professors in seminary, was something of a specialist in this. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, he'd written quite a bit about it, and it was through studying with him that I found out about it and discovered something of its impact. Yeah, yeah, so you sort of like, uh, you know, that you know, that one pebble that starts an avalanche. You know, right. one thing leads to another. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, like I said, you've got to bring it back to Spinoza because it really revolves yeah. around the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch <laughs> as a way of undermining the Gospels. Yeah. Right, right. And, and one of the things you, it's interesting you see here is whereas in the classical vision, as I said, uh, grounded in first principles, <laughs> The, the surface narrative of the text was taken seriously, redemptive history, even though it would talk about other layers. What happens here is that surface history of the text now itself becomes suspect. There has to, if there is anything in scripture, it has to be something behind the Mosaic author. Again, if, if Moses attributed um, writing it, 
and then we can show that there's nothing that guarantees it, well then that goes out of the door. But what ends up happening is the actual naive assumption that when scripture makes a historical point, that you can take it seriously as a historical point. You have to validate it now through historical means rather than take the historical t story of Scripture as an authority itself. So the, 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 the historical story of Scripture or narrative becomes suspect well, at this point. Yeah, and what that fails to do, of course, is yeah. play fair because these yeah. other things that we take as sort of sources of authority yeah. we don't apply the same scrutiny to. We don't. And what happens, as Glenn pointed out, is at this time, what can be reconstructed through our reason and makes reasonable sense to us is the only thing that has kind of valid historical significance and with Protestant liberalism is the only thing we really can still hold on to. So we can get rid of, you know, the, sh the sh shell and just get a hold of this rational kernel and that's what's historically significant. And then if you're a person of faith, that's that little tiny rational gem you've gotten a hold of after all that work is, is something you can kind of build your ethics on or something that way with, with liberalism. Yeah, so it's, it's worth noting where this, this leads when you move it forward. So we get this idea that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. From there, we get the idea ultimately that the Pentateuch is probably post-exilic. Yeah. <laughs> um, multiple authors woven together and so on. And what that means is you can't take any of its history seriously and you can't consider it a valid historic source for anything at all hmm. except uh, the at least some segment of um, the Israelites' uh, folk history, you know, their, their own self-concept. Hmm. And as a result, you can't really use it to guide research or, yeah. or you know, um, uh, you get biblical minimalism, you get a whole slew of things that follow from this. Now, now we know that uh, there are a number of ways to respond to these assertions. Yeah. And uh, so it's not as though there's no reasonable, you know, alternative to this way of thinking. Right, yeah. Um, my, the, my point here is that the rise of rationalism and through these kinds of debates, you know, we don't really think much about the significance of the authorship of the Pentateuch. Right. We don't think about if Moses didn't write it, what that means when Jesus says Moses said. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Oh, yeah, and, and you notice, I mean, out goes, you know, out goes the question. When you, when you question what Jesus said, also, you begin to have to question Jesus. <laughs> um, at this point, is this is this is why in this period radical redefinitions of Christology begin to take place, um, and and Jesus reduced to, um, you know, a, a historical figure. Um, if if you know, I mean, later if he can even be um, historical at all, but at this time you start to come to the level of what what. What would make most rational sense of Jesus if we got rid of... Because, I mean, right here, if Jesus is wrong about Moses, then Jesus, of course, can be wrong. Right. Therefore, he can be like every other person, so therefore he can't be the Son of God or his humanity. So what, what do we do with that? And I think this, became, this enters into the whole the, the theology world is you start to get these understandings of Jesus as sort of the, the human that was most transparent to God, right? Not the eternal son of God made flesh, but the, the, you know, someone who was fallible, but nevertheless um, was open to God in a certain way. So they, they, the theologian, Christian theologians followed suit. I mean, they really did. They, they, you know, these things were connected. Now, there are a couple of things I think would be worth kind of reflecting on in this area, in, or in this uh, sort, of, sort of concern. And, and I think when we think about this matter of Jesus being wrong or Jesus not being in the know, okay, so we know that, that Jesus himself says that he doesn't know when he's going to come back. That's right. You yeah. know, so he already tells us there are certain things, therefore, that he does not know. 
Yeah, and yeah. it's yeah. That's but right. that's not the same thing as that's being wrong, wrong about the yeah. authorship of that's right. the Pentateuch. Yeah. But um, I do think it's it's worth noting that we don't have to um, think of Jesus as never n- never uh, being surprised. For example, you know, to be surprised, yeah. Yeah. you know, you have to not expect something. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so. Does that mean that you just, like every time you walked in the room, Jesus turned around and said, oh, I knew you were coming. Was it just a completely impossible to ever yeah. like tell the joke to Jesus? Did he yeah. always like steal the punchline? <laughs> and I know how this story ends. You know, <laughs> you know, is, was he just like that kind of guy or did he actually and laugh it, well, sometimes? Well, and interestingly, there were episodes where it seemed the other way. I mean, come meet a man who told me everything I've done, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you, you have this, you have this play there, but I mean, that's the mystery of the incarnation, I think, Glenn, you were going to... Yeah, well, yes, if Jesus laughed. I, my favorite example of where I think Jesus was just really having fun was when the disciples are spending all night trying to row across the lake, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. In one of the Gospels, I forgot which one, it <laughs> says... He intended to pass them by. (laughs) Yeah, these guys are laboring, laboring. He's just going to walk right by. Probably smiling and waving. Yeah. But but you get my point is that I think sometimes we're dealing with straw men. That's right. And, and I mean, I, the theologians, you know, go back to Augustine's writings. And I mean, they were always trying, what, what aspects deal with his true humanity, full humanity? What aspects deal with his full deity? And the mis- mystery of how those uh, interrelate. So, we, we, you know, we can be fine. I mean, kenosis theories, for example, always try to wrestle with the way in which Philippians talks about, you know, th- those aspects of him not taking on I mean, him taking on the limitations of being a human being in, in all of this. And, you know, there's, there's a good, you know, there's good work to understand the way Scripture presents that full mystery and leaves us wondering. But, yeah, here's something's very different going on. You have Jesus being wrong. Yeah, this you don't is- have Jesus being wrong when he says, okay, in my humanity and in this particular moment in the fulfillment of the purposes of God in history, I don't know when the... the the, the coming is, you know, that's different than saying, you know, okay, the coming's going to happen here, and it didn't happen. Of course, people wrestle with that issue too, but we'll get, but, we'll get but to Spinoza that. But yeah. Spinoza is is framing the argument in such a way so as to undermine the piety of Christians. I think that's uh, something to not lose sight of. We have we have a, the power to frame arguments in such a way as so as to kind of lead people to yeah. some place we want them to go and. Spinoza is, is leading people along. Yeah, and what, what's important about it is it's, it's a, an indirect attack. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he's going after Jesus, but he's doing it in a way that is, doesn't even re- refer to Jesus at all. That's right, yeah. You know, I mean, so it, it's, a, it's a pretty subtle way of trying to undermine uh, the... Fe- Basically, really, the role of Christianity in society. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so. and and in the you know and I mean other liberal theologians much later talked about okay Jesus refers to the validity of Noah and so through their own you know modern understanding of geology they're not convinced the flood could have happened so Jesus obviously made mistake after mistake and then theologians rush in and well Jesus in his humanity um, was just you know referencing using what people understood at that time and accommodating their... So you have all these ways in which Spinoza basically introduces something that theologians have to make sense of if they're going to, to make sense of the fact that um, this, this understanding of history this way and this new modern understanding rationalistically construed has placed Christianity now under its measure and therefore we're trying to fit our Christology within that altered understanding. Now, a couple things to, to, I guess, say about Spinoza, because he's kind of got a reputation in the history of philosophy as being a nice guy. You know, he's he's not like... like a nasty guy, like Hobbes or somebody, uh, yeah, or yeah. you know Marx, or you know he, he's he, and you know Einstein liked him a lot. He said you know essentially the god that he believed in was the god of Spinoza. You know so whenever just so you know in podcast land if you ever use 
Einstein to try to demonstrate that <laughs> smart people can believe in God too. <laughs> Einstein was probably talking about Spinoza's God yeah, and not yeah. the God that you believe in. But um, be that as it may, um, sometimes I think uh, we have to kind of work to get underneath the surface what, what is really going on here. What, is, what, is, what was Spinoza up to? I think Spinoza wasn't picking so much on Christianity uh, as he was on revealed religion in general. I think that, you know, he, he got into trouble with, if I remember correctly, he got into trouble with the, with the rabbis. Yeah, yeah, he did. But I think that there was a political well, motivation behind a lot of what he was doing here. Now, okay. Glenn, just, just I'm trying to piece together my mem memory of this period of time. You're dealing with a time that already saw the battles and religion wars out, right. that out, have come out of Catholicism, you know, the regional conflicts, however you understand them. And Jews in particular had a very rough go within that climate as well. Right. So to, to, in a lot of figures, tried to come up with, well, what, what is the bare reducible amount of things that everyone can share in common to kind of bring some kind of harmony to this endless conflict? And so this natural religion starts to take on a very a reason, rational grounded, something yeah. like everyone that's universal, they have the uh, reason together, and then they would have this nature together. Right. And so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, to put this in perspective, the Thirty Years' War, yeah. which ran from 1618 to 1648, is to this day remembered as the most devastating war ever fought on German soil, and that includes World Wars One and Two. Yeah. Yeah. That is how bad it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we can understand what was uh, sort of the rationale behind yeah. look the search for neutral ground that was the yeah. that was the the, the 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 basis or the justification for the search for neutral ground because just a lot of people had died yeah and so if you could find a something if you could go to if you could find something that everyone could agree on then maybe you could start to build social relations and society and politics in a way that everyone could say, okay, there's something basic enough here. We can have our differences and yet still have this shared public without, you know. And so right. I think th these were steps in this direction. I mean, this is why later, you'll have someone much later, Karl Barth, react to that whole view of natural theology because for him it was a complete abandonment of revelation. But that's a, that's a different story. But here it's working the other way. Revel, all these claims to revelation have, in his, these people's mind, led to battles, wars, division, not unity. And so how in the world are we going to have some kind of peace? Well, let's make it bare bones. Let's reduce it to what people can hold in common, natural endowments like reason, and they understood it universal mm -hmm. at this time in some sense, um, and then, then hist and a natural history, a naturalistic reading of history, where no confession could dominate the interpretation. I mean, that's how I understand a lot of these moves. Yeah. yeah. Now, in a, in a bit of a different direction, one of the other things that's going to happen in this period occurs by a, a, a German by the name of Johann Zemmler, hmm. a guy that most people have never heard of. He's considered to be the father of comparative religion. And Zemmler is an interesting guy. He grew up in a sort of traditional confessional Lutheran home in an area where there were a lot of pietists. So he was influenced by the pietists. He was also heavily influenced by the, uh, the rationalism of the day. And so he began teaching in a Lutheran seminary, held officially to the doctrines that the Lutheran church taught. But most of what he did seemed to undermine that. <laughs> He's gonna argue, for example, against miracles, He's going to argue. Uh, he's going to argue that basically all religions. He's going to historicize religions, yeah. and argue that they all sort of are pointing in the same direction, and things like that. He will also be heavily involved with biblical criticism. Yeah. Like I said, he's rejecting miracles. He's rejecting authorship. All of these kinds of things. And the thing that I find interesting about Zemmler is somehow this worked for him. I think it was the effect of pietism because so, he, he accepted from pietism the idea that the thing that's really at the core is having this warm personal faith, which he had, so he could afford to get rid of the rational elements of religion yeah. Yeah. Um, like the pietists really wanted to do. He could afford to get rid of all of that stuff 
accept on faith Lutheran doctrines, but argue that there's really no intellectual foundation for them or whatever, which worked great for Zemmler. His next generation of students, though, all of them lost the faith. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we find something similar going on in our world when, you know, we can recall not too long ago kind of the, I don't know if you'd call it a battle cry or just simply a cry for mercy, (laughs) when people would say, uh, doctrine divides. You know, that was something yeah. that yeah. was, uh, you know, stated from many pulpits as though this was good to hear and consequently an excuse for the pastor not to spend any time teaching doctrine. Yeah, I... And let me just kind of comp- sort of carry this through. Mm-hmm, sure. And now we've got a lot of children who've grown up under that kind of teaching who have left the faith. Right. So, so the parallel... Yeah, I I wrote an article about the emergent church where I talked about Zemmler. I called it reinventing the flat tire. (laughs) Because essentially they're making the same mistake he made. Um, uh, If you've got that experience of faith, that can carry you through. But if you teach these things that really go against the uniqueness of historic Christian revelation and the uniqueness of historic Christianity... If that's what you're teaching, no matter how warm your own personal faith is, the next generation is going to lose it. Yeah, this is one of the things we, I mean, I I know from the period I studied with Karl Barth was very big because this this, um, renewal of pietistic um, Christianity, but in a liberal form, really started to take over. I mean, very influenced by Zinzendorf and uh, Schleiermacher. Um, This notion that you have this um, spiritual experience um, of Christ or dependence on Christ, this warmth, uh, 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 this warm piety that is mediated through other people's faith. So there, there is a purpose to tradition, not in the sense it's binding doctrine, but it's a medium of that, that spiritual experience to which can be, can be an impact, have, make an impact on us. Um, and so, I mean, uh, you had at the time when Karl Barth was a student, that was the attractive thing in, in, Christian, in, in, in liberal Christianity in Germany and at the high levels of academia. And you had figures like Wilhelm Hermann who wrote a whole ethics and, and everything else but basically made this central experiential core. And they, they were so profound with it that you had figures like J. Gresham Machen later come influenced, I think, by, I think it was von Harnack, and said, if I wasn't well-grounded in my faith, I would have ran with this stuff. They sold it so well. But the exact thing, Bart began to question it as a student of it who embraced it when he started to see that the, uh, the experiences of the suffering in his congregation, especially the working class under the conditions, was not that liberal bourgeois experience of Christ that he grew up with. So, of course, he got involved in political movements at the time. But that put, started to put a question mark over this the fragile notion of experience that they built their whole theological edifice on. And uh, that's, that's the thing. One, once it shifts a little bit, the experience-centered theology can't hold. Yeah, and ask yourself the question, what is most evangelical popular theology built around. Sure. And, and you see also how it gets attracted to um, experience-centered ideologies. Um, right, right. For example, um, the whole notion of sort of uh, identity consciousness, race consciousness, any right. of these things are grounded in the experience of what it means to be conscious of having this particular identity and this particular experience. So when you have consciousness, exper- experiential consciousness, the center of your faith, um, or in the center of your ideology, for that matter, you're placed in all the same vulnerabilities. You can't, first of all, rationally communicate this faith um, other than this is my experience and to right, which right. I used to tell the Mormons, well, good for you. You know, right, It's not right. my experience. But I mean, it, there, it's the, it, it, it leaves a stop there. So what's next? If you don't accept my experience and I need my experience to be accepted, what's next? Rejection. And what yeah. happens when you lose the experience? Yeah, yeah right. that's right. right. And, and so, and so it's, it, you know, experience-centered theologies and ideologies are, are uh, they, in the end, they wreak havoc. And, yeah. and, and theological liberalism and its form in evangelicalism has, is already, I mean, it's, it's done so much damage that, that it will take a ground-up 
like, like Bart even said in Soffenville, starting with the alphabet, re- starting with scripture again, read not pietistically. <laughs> yeah, I think that what we, what we uh, really need, we may not long for it yet, but I, I think some people do long for is theology as, as a map of reality. If we think about it in those terms, and when I mean map, uh, I'm talking about in all of its, you know, reality in all of its dimensions. The metaphysic, yeah. but also the historic, you know, the ethical, uh, the personal, the political, all of these things. Uh, Christianity provides us with a map of reality. Now, how, how well do we read the map is yeah. a good question. I, you know, I, I work hard at trying to read the map well. Um, and, uh, but I don't think that most folks think in, that, in those terms at all. I think that yeah. they're entirely referring to their experiences. They're sort of in a sort of kind of feedback loop, you could say, where it's all about them and how they're experiencing their lives. That's right. And what Jesus can do for me in the course of my life. You know, um, what, it, what I think you, know, you, really, you really ought to want is a map of reality that says you are here. <laughs> you know, like when you go to like in a media mall. race, right? <laughs> yeah, in you go to a, that's right. Yeah. You go there and you say you are here, and you say and you look at the map and say I don't want to be there. <laughs> I want to be there. No. <laughs> I had a T-shirt once that showed a spiral galaxy, and there was a, an arrow pointing to one of the arms, and it said you are here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But be, you, you see what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. When you know where you where you are, you know where you ought to be or should want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can, can, can include, you know, your sense of self, uh, your feelings. In other words, um, it's not about you. It's about you in something bigger than you. And the bigger than you is God, of course. Yeah, and it's, I, I think one of the things you know, I mean, uh, one point is, is, is when we get to Spinoza, Spinoza's dealing with the biblical text and, and the kind of ripping the ground out from certain claims um, is driven by Spinoza's reworking of his understanding of reality. I mean, he, he was a metaphysician, and then he was applying that metaphysics to the rest of the game. Whatever his motives are, that's what's going on. And so everyone who comes running after him who didn't engage his metaphysic but picked up where he left the game, even they tried to make... Christianity makes sense within those parameters missed the mark. What they should have been doing was going after the, the metaphys- flawed metaphysic. Yeah, well, I, so- I think that's true for any apology. Yeah. You know, any time that we yeah. in- encounter a, uh, a, a thinker who uh, is out of accord with the truth, we need to critique the very map of reality that that person is working from. That's right. Um, if, if, if we're, if we're kind of if we're entering into that person's map yeah. and saying, no, you got that turn in the road a little wrong. Well, but, <laughs> that, and, and that, notice, that we've already conceded the whole thing. But, to, and to, you notice in academics, and Glenn, I'm sure you hear this all the time too, is people work from this frame almost as the current condition as fate. I hear it all the time. Theology, this is the situation in the intellectual world. Therefore, theology has to work within its conditions. Yeah, yeah, it's a it bunch of engage, BS. It has to engage them, but it is free from those. That's I mean, right. That's, that's the point. It's transcendental reference does not mean that it The needs best thing that we can do uh, in a situation like that is say, you guys are nuts. Yeah, yeah. That, that is not reality. You, yeah. You're wrong. It's like Lewis's point, God in the dock, right? I mean, the same thing. Theology in the dock. Biblical studies in the dock. In the dock of human-centered grounds and conditions as if their fate which determine what can be or not said and be claimed to be true. Now, I will grant this. If you are merely doing theology to the point where you're not addressing those conditions, you can likewise be not heard. <laughs> so there, there sure. is, I'm not saying that we, we don't understand. I mean, that's what we do on the show. We're trying to unpack from the inside a lot of times these ideas so that we understand those conditions and know what we're actually communicating into. Well, and to, you know, to be real, we, we know that, uh, that uh, the delusion can be strong, you know, as we see in Scripture, and that sometimes people really do need to die. You know, this generation passes away so that another generation is...
Well, we're back. We got cut off. Uh, there was a technical difficulty, and we not even remember. We don't even remember what we were talking about. <laughs> but anyway, we'll try to pick it up uh, as best we can and finish things out here. Anyway, uh, where were we? Glenn's next point. Yeah, Glenn's next well, point. Actually, I was going to comment on on this idea of a map to reality. Okay, good, good, good. Get back to the map. One one of the things that you know when I'm teaching worldview. One of the things I point out is that in, in modern society, people have really compartmentalized stuff. Right. You know, they've got a box for their job. They've got a box for their family. They've got a box for their uh, whatever they're doing in the community. They've got a box for the church and so on. And as a result, they tend to think that you can pull the religion box off the table and put another religion box on t- uh, into the same slot and it'll work. Right. So all their boxes are on a set of shelves and they don't really touch each other much. Right. The problem with that is that what Christianity is is not one of the boxes, it's the shelf. That's it. Right. It's the thing that holds everything else together. Mm-hmm. And while you're dealing with you know metaphysics and ethics and things like that, it also applies in individual lives. Sure. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And I think that this is something that maybe intimidates some of our listeners and they you know they just don't think in these terms they're they're people who just kind of live their lives as best they can and try to serve the lord and and uh you know love their neighbors and worship the lord uh, the way they they know they should um and and that's great but there are people who uh, even with those things in mind unwittingly are operating from a, a framework that's not in keeping with the very purposes that, or, or intentions that they, they cherish or, or values that they cherish, I should yeah, say. Yeah, and I, I think it's important. You know, I, I guess the point that I was really trying to drive home with all of this indirectly is that although intellectual life isn't everything, um, ideas have consequences. Right, right. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that when you start picking away at things that are even something that is as apparently insignificant as whether Moses actually wrote the Pentateuch, it's got a ripple effect right. that, that, if, that can really travel much farther than you realize. Now, there's, a, a, there's kind of a tension in, in this that I think we should talk about a little bit. Um, you know... The Apostle Paul, you know, speaking to the Corinthians, said, not many of you were wise, right? Mm-hmm. Now, some folks who are not very well educated point to that and say, there you go. People who spend a lot of time talking about <laughs> things that we you know, like to talk about on you know, the Theology Podcast are wasting our time. We ought to just kind of go out and serve the Lord as best we can and just trust God for the... For and the, what the do you think else. we're doing? That's right. <laughs> well, there's that. But the, but the guy who said that was probably the best educated Jew, definitely the best educated Christian yeah. of his time. <laughs> In yeah. other words, this guy, he was a, uh, an equivalent of an Ivy League graduate uh, an equivalent of a uh, Supreme Court clerk, an equivalent of a highly connected political, you know, sort of family. You know, he was a Roman citizen by birth. He was from a very, well, significant and, you know, kind of a university town in Asia Minor. So this was a guy who had the authority to say, you know, wisdom isn't everything. I should know. I'm incredibly wise by worldly standards. <laughs> yeah, you get, get what I'm saying. And he's and, he, and he's doing a, a, a kind of a, a power play. Of course, he's he's showing that the that the weakness of God right. is so much more impressively strong than all the magnitude and strength of humanity. Just like the wisdom of God, which it will appear foolish to the wise of this world who don't know um, um, Christ. But then he goes on to say, but Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Right. And so his whole point is not to get rid of wisdom. It's to reorient wisdom in light of the one who is wisdom incarnate, Christ. 
and then to bring all things into conformity. I mean, what does he say? He talks about the renewal of the mind. Right. Um, this is your reasonable service. Um, this doesn't mean everybody has to become an academic or an intellectual, but it is talking about bringing all of our thoughts and all of our experiences in conformity to Christ and his purposes. And all of our understanding. And all their understanding. And so there is an uprooting, is a weaning off of our idols and a purification of our loves as they are brought into true knowledge of God and Christ and, and as that starts to take root in the spirit. And so this is, first and foremost, um, it is even the early, earliest church understood that there is a huge renewal of the mind that needs to take place in the church and a re-visioning of everything. And that's really what theology has been up to since the beginning of time, re-envisioning all things in light of the truth of Christ. Yeah, and I think that the thing that Paul was really going after there is the people who judge Christianity on the basis of their own wisdom and their own understanding, which is exactly what we're dealing with with right. Spinoza, with Leclerc especially, um, and ultimately with Zemmler, with Schleiermacher, everybody else. All these guys, what they are doing is they are using their own human wisdom as the measuring rod by to which Christianity has to uh, conform. And that's disastrous. If you do that, yeah. you lose the faith. And, right. and I think that goes back to that point a little bit earlier. What ended up happening with Spinoza was this taking the theological measuring rod that Christianity gave us, bringing things back to first principles, God and all things in relation to God and his purposes, um, versus the human measuring rod, which is history as I experience it naturally and try to understand and piece it back together. Um, Again, there is that dimension, there is a significance of that, but that is not the measure. And I think in that same with human reason, the same with human experience. The same with anything grounded humanistically, the same with anything creaturely. Not even the universe, not even the, the, the cosmos, for that matter, is the measure of all things. Sorry, Carl Sagan. <laughs> Most of our audience probably don't even know who that is. So that <laughs> right. An <Right>. odd reference. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that dates me. <laughs> right. I used to refer to him as Cardinal Sagan because he pontificated so much. <laughs> No, that's right. That's right. Did you? So somebody uh, recently, maybe it was you. Somebody recently uh, sent a clip of they were reading a Carl Sagan who was talking completely, almost as if he was baffled by the way people abandon a teleological understanding of creation and nature. It was very. It was almost ridiculous. Well, well, near the end, the the, the, uh, he uh, he saw that the naturalism that he thought would fill the gap. Yeah, that uh, God left when God left the scene was uh, not the sort of thing that he had hoped it would 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 occur. Uh, in other words, uh, kind of the atheism that Sagan, you know, was yeah. committed to, but instead uh, all sorts of pagan and neo-pagan and New Age ideas. Yeah. So he he wrote, uh, I think, his last book. Uh, was a, actually a, a call to arms uh, against kind of the uh, rise of neo-pagan and new age that thought. May have been the, that may have been what it was from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the... Sagan's um, hope was essentially... One of my favorite episodes that we did was the one on enchantment. Right. Hmm. And Max Weber talked about how the world got disenchanted right. through science. Right, mm-hmm science, technology, industry, all of those things, he believed that science could provide the re-enchantment. Yeah, the very thing yeah. that disenchanted it, he thought, could provide meaning, inspiration, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, it's essentially the hope of Star Trek. Sure, sure. But, um, and that, I think, is what Sagan was looking for as well. He's very much in keeping with Weber's ideas, yeah. but, you know, the problem is... People, yeah. you, you sterilize the universe. People can't live in it. Yeah, yeah, I think that when you when you look at Sagan, I think you you see a, a kind of romantic vision, and uh, I think that he was um, really religiously disposed. I just don't think that he believed in the Christian faith. I think that he had uh, absolutized 
the science yeah. that he, he had... He found transcendence in the universe. He was right. effectively a pantheist. Right, right. And he couldn't... He was just terribly disappointed that no one else found the universe to be inspiring in the same way that he did. And it's a particular kind of mind, you know, um, that we're talking about here. Um, and, and so often people are kind of blind to the variety of human experience and ways people think. Uh, I think Sagan probably, this is my guess, is, is that he probably just thought everybody could be like him. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of that, I've got good news for you, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, it didn't work. Yeah. Well, we should start uh, kind of bringing this uh, plane in for a landing. So is there anything you want to say as we kind of do that, Glenn? Well, again, I guess the uh, just to reiterate the, the point that I was trying to get to here, part of it was to help set the groundwork for some of what Tom does. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, along with that, we, we have to address the questions that are being asked. We have to engage those questions. We've got to engage them about Scripture and so on. But at the end of the day, if we make the mistake of relying on our own reason and everything else to be the judge of things. We are finite <clears throat> creatures. Our reason is limited. Yeah. Um, if we rely on that, it is going to lead us to all kinds of bad places. Um, right. You know, even something as simple, like I keep saying, as mosaic authorship undermines the rest of the faith yep. if, <laughs> if you give it up. Right. Um, that sets the groundwork for saying that all religions are the same. We've got that in Zemler. Right. Um, it leads to the idea that, you know, as long as you've got your warm personal faith, as long as you've got your experience, you're good. Right. That, that all of these things end up being fatal in the long run. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think getting back, you know, as my, in terms of my concluding thought, uh, getting back to this, this idea of the map, you know, there, are, there are, are cartographers, you could say, who are really good at the Christian map. These, these are thinkers that, uh, weren't trying to make a map uh, out of nothing. These are people who understood the map uh, that uh, they've been given and were really good at passing it on. C.S. Lewis is a great example of that. You know, he he uh, he introduced people to the truth that he had received. He wasn't. He was original without trying to be original. You know, right? Uh, Harry Blair. Blair uh, is it Blair Myers? Blair uh, wrote the uh, the Christian mind, how a Christian could think. Blair Myers. Yeah. Yeah, Blair Myers. Uh, the Christian mind is another example of a of a work along that line. Can you think of some others that maybe you know? I think of maybe. Uh, jo- uh, well, I'm just drawing a blank on a, on another theologian that I, I liked. Well, I would go to the institutes, but... <laughs> You're well, talking about, about on the, the place of the mind and the Christian faith, or...? Well, basically, the, the, the map of, of reality that we, re, that we receive, you know, handed down to us, you know, in the Christian tradition. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could go... I mean, you could go all the way back to the you know earliest fathers who were already starting to draw that map and work out what was you know detailed. The Cappadocian fathers, Athanasius, I think it was, right. is is very key. Augustine, Aquinas, any of the reformers. Again, we don't agree with everything each one said. I don't agree with myself the next day most of the time. What I was thinking the day before, but we're talking about the drawing of a big map that that founded its initiation and in, in Christ's lordship. Um, and, I, and I think that one last point on my end is that in saying this, Christianity, I think one of the, 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 re, you know, the reactions to rationalism was the flip side we mentioned, fideism or, or experience-centered. Um, but Christianity I mean, classically has reasons very significant, and you don't jettison it. You just don't make it the fundamental ground as it's grounded in the human being. It's the mind of God that our reason is, gra- is, is, right. is grounded in. Right. Um, and, that's and genuine reason right there. That's genuine reason. And the more it's, it's grounded in, in the mind of Christ, mind right. of God, the more it is right, reasonable and, and rational in the right sense of the word. Well, that's a good way to end the show. I think that's, good, that's a good spot. Anyway, well, we uh, are grateful that you listened all the way to the end of another episode of the Theology Pugcast. And uh, we're glad that uh, so many of you have uh, 
told us over the last couple of years just how much you have appreciated the show. Another way you can uh, express your appreciation for the show is through rating it, you know, on iTunes or whatever platform that you listen to the show on. I imagine there's a way to let folks know what you think about us, and hopefully you like us enough to do that, and uh, we would appreciate it if you did. Uh, we're also grateful to all the folks who give to the show on a regular basis. Uh, those gifts are appreciated, and they go to keep the show uh, pr you know, in production and uh, posted, and uh, we, we couldn't do the show without those gifts, so thank you for those. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot, and again, and bye-bye. Bye now.